you are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. So if you remember the days, some of you remember, most young folks don't, but of the cassette tape, a glorious day. And, and back, you know, growing up when there was a, you know, your favorite artist came out with an album, if there was a song on there, you had to buy the entire album. There was no, you know, buy one out, you know, buy one song, right? So you'd have to go shell out your $8, which is like equivalent of $150 today in inflation, and get that one tape for that one song. And most albums really only had one good song. The rest were garbage, right? There was this one good song, but you, and you'd wear that out and you'd have to hit the, you know, flip the tape and turn it on and rewind it, remember that? And you had to find kind of where it was. Once in a while, you'd get an album that have two good songs or three good songs. It was a miracle, I was like, you know, like when, when Hootie and the Blowfish's first album, great album, by the way. Cracker Review came out. It was like every good song. Appetite for Destruction, come on, man. You know this song, that album had like five good songs. Very rare. For, for you to really listen to an entire album, you had to come out with like the Greatest Hits album. And if you had a Greatest Hits album, you actually had to have Greatest Hits. So the Beatles, 62 to 66, one of the greatest albums of all time, right? But they were the greatest hits because those were the songs you gravitated to. The rest of the songs, eh, they, they, you gravitated to that for some reason. And we've been working through the Psalms, it's our third week, and there's 150 of them. We're not gonna work through all of them, but what, for my part, I wanna do is I wanna kind of gravitate to the greatest hits, all right? And, and all the scriptures inspired, all the Psalms are equally inspired, all profitable, all from God. But there are, we're honest, there's songs that we like more than others, and, and so the psalm we're going to look at today is a greatest hit. It's one that the early church loved. In fact, it's one of the most quoted songs in the New Testament. Jesus quotes it. Paul quotes it. The writer of Hebrews quotes it because it was a greatest hit. They, they were hit and rewind. They wanted to come back to this because it was special to them. Um, and so we're going to look at Psalm 8 today. And I've entitled it the Psalm of the Little Guy. And it's not just because I'm little. David was little and he wrote it. So, But it's a song for the little guy. And remember, the reason we have songs, God's given us music, specifically these songs, is to impact our minds, to remind us, to teach us so that we remember, but also to, to affect our hearts. There's an emotive piece. God's not after your intellect. He's after your heart. And, and that's what songs do. They remind us, but they impact our hearts. And this is a song that God has given us a greatest hit that's meant to impact us and remind us of something. It's gonna answer for us really three questions today. This song is gonna point us to three questions. Number one, what is God like? What is God like? Number two, what does he do? And number three, what are we to him? So that, that's where this song is gonna point us and these are truths that God wants us to remember and it, he wants us to move us emotionally because of these things. And on one hand, this is gonna be, should be an encouraging song, but to some, it may be a challenge. This song may be a reminder for those of you who walk in the room and you think you're Mr. Big Stuff. You think you're pretty significant. You're the starting, fill in the blank. You, the big wig on campus, you're the VP, you're the big money, you're the whatever. This song has a lesson for you. But if you also came in the room on the flip side and you're like, man, I'm a nobody. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just a nobody. I, I, I'm not very good at anything. I'm this, I'm that, I'm unworthy. If, you, if that's where you came, this song has an encouragement for you too, right? That God wants to teach us something here and teach us something here. Because the secret of the song, let me tell you the secret, is whether you're seven foot three or you're three foot seven, we're all the little guy. 
We all are compared to God. And that's the point. So let me read our psalm. It's a familiar song. It's a greatest hit if you're familiar with the scripture and we'll jump into it. Verse one, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so you have the little heading in your Bible if you saw it to the choir master, and this is kind of for the, uh, so you gotta kind of get some background on the psalm. It's a psalm of David. It's to the choir master, which is like saying, hey, gardener, heads up, right? That's, that's the idea. Because this is not a song just for David. It's a song for all of us. This is an invitation for you and for me and for everybody that gardener, whoever the choir master was gonna be, Asaph, Ethan, whatever, in the Old Testament, that person is going to lead the people to sing this song. And it's according to the Giddith, which honestly, we don't know what the Giddith is. It's either an instrument or a tune. It's one or the other. We don't know. And that's fine because we don't have Giddith on stage anyway. But you could say to the Fender or the Telecaster would be the same idea. But it's probably the, the tune to which it is sung, but it's for everybody and it's from David. And the point of the psalm is real easy. I mean, he repeats it twice. Whenever a verse is repeated twice, it's important. And there's this, what we call an inclusio, verse one, verse nine, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the point. And so let's talk about the point real quick of the song. He says, oh Lord, our Lord. And you said, see the word Lord there twice, but one's in capital letters and one's not. And that's because the English uh, edition is trying to show, highlight, this is two different Hebrew words. First one is, oh Lord, Yahweh is the word. It's the covenant name of Israel for God, where he in Exodus three, Moses said, who should I tell them sent me to you, Pharaoh? And the people, and he says, tell them I am sent you. When God speaks of himself, he is I am. When, he, when we speak of him, he is Yahweh, he is. It's the third person singular. So Yahweh is, he is. He is the one true God. He is the God who is outside of everything else. He is the God who is unchangeable, who is not dependent on anyone. He is self-existing. He is the covenant-keeping, faithful, personal God. He, says, he starts off, oh, Yahweh. And then he says, our Lord, our Adonai, our king, our ruler, our, 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 our authority is the idea, right? That, that's where he's going. But notice it's our Lord. I think that's significant. David could have wrote, as he does other places, oh, Yahweh, my Lord, which would have been true. But this is our Lord because David is inviting you and he's inviting me to see something about God, to worship this personal God, this covenant-keeping, faithful God. And he's gonna tell us why. He's gonna tell us something about him. So the first really question is answered in the song is, what is God like, is in the first verse. What is God like? God is majestic, which is a great word that we don't use a lot. But it's a great word. The word in the Hebrew, it's elsewhere translated magnificent, or mighty, or beautiful. 
O Lord, our Lord, how beautiful, how mighty, how majestic, how magnificent is your name in all the earth. And why does he use name? Because especially for, for the Old Testament reader, name, who you, your name is, is who you are. There's an association, it's your name and your character, right? You can't separate, they're fused together, right? And we, and we still see this a little bit. This is why if you go over to the nursery right now, you're not gonna find a bunch of little Judases running around. Oh, what's your name? Oh, my name's Judas. No, you're not gonna find Judas over there. Why? Because the name Judas, although a great name, it's the name Judah, is associated with something. What? With betrayal, Right? You betrayed Jesus, so you're not thinking that. This is why when some of you are about to name your kids, you're like, okay, let's think about names, baby names. You get the little baby name book out. What, what name do you like? Oh, I like this name. I like the name Clint. No, I don't like the name Clint. <laughs> I knew this tall guy. He was a horrible poet, horrible poet. For, for those of you here last week, I know. If you think I don't listen to sermons when I'm gone, I do. I listen. <laughs> but we can't name him Clint. We don't like that name. Right, or I had this teacher, and, and, and her name was this, and so we can't, there's an association with name and character, and what, what David is saying is, God, your name is associated with what? Majesticness, beauty, greatness, bigness. Your name is majestic in, in the entirety of this little planet, third rock from the sun. It is everywhere. It is full. The whole earth is full with the glory of the Lord. That's what he's saying up front. And God wants you and David and all of us to see how great and majestic he is. And David sees it. And here's the interesting thing about David. We always talk about David. David, greatest king of Israel. Yeah, and he was. But David was jacked up, y'all. He was a jacked up dude. You read his life. There's probably more negative written than positive. He lies and gets a bunch of priests killed. He commits adultery, has the husband of the lady he committed adultery killed. He's a horrible dad. Shows partiality, doesn't deal with this kid. This kid's about to take over the kingdom. He doesn't deal with him. He has one son that rapes his, his stepsister or half-sister. He doesn't deal with it. He, he, he's so arrogant that he does something that God tells him not to do and it costs 70,000 Israelites their lives. This is not a great guy per se, but yet he is called a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he gets God's majesticness, his glory, and he worships him. Doesn't mean he's perfect. And that's a great encouragement because I'm not, I'm not a great dad. I'm not perfect, right? But, but God wants us to see his majesty, he wants us to see his vastness and his beauty. And he has this greatest hit here so that you will. And the rest of the song is really, why is he majestic? And he, and he goes right into it, right? You have set your glory, and it's not the typical word for glory, kavod. It's a different word that means your beauty or your splendor or your honor, or even some of your translations say majesty. Your, your splendor, your majesty, you put it above the heavens, and what's clear from this psalm is that David is, is writing it as he's out at night, maybe when he's a young shepherd still. We don't know exactly when it was written, but he's out at night and he's looking up at the stars, right? The heavens. And understand this, you know, the scientists tell us that with the naked eye, you can see about 5,000 stars in the sky uh, with no light pollution, right? It's a lot, but, but that's not even close to the amount of stars 
And now David has no concept of, you know, the Milky Way and the, the this and the that and all the black hole and, you know, Star Trek. He doesn't have any like, idea about all that, right? But what he sees is that's as high as you can get. And he says, and, and your glory is above that. And now what we know is that's just, that's just, that's not even this much of the universe. Just the Milky Way galaxy, right? Where we live, we live in the Milky Way, right? There is an estimate, and again, it's a pretty big estimate because scientists really don't know as much as they think they do, between 200 billion and 400 billion stars. That's a big gap there, y'all, okay? So, but that's the estimate of just the Milky Way galaxy. Do you know how many galaxies there are? We have no clue, right? But I know this, the Hubble sent this back a few years ago. Every single speck on that is a galaxy, Every single one, even the littlest ones, a full galaxy with 200 to 400 billion stars each. And, and estimates now, and I, you know, who else do you go to besides space.com? I mean, that seems silly, but reputable to me. <laughs> space.com. Um, there is between, again, big gap here, hundreds of billions and two trillion galaxies. Trillion with a T. And each of those galaxies has all these, I, the point is this, it is vast. I mean, if you could get in your Millennium Falcon and go light speed, which travels at 186,000 miles per second to cross the known universe, and the known universe every, every 10 years seems to grow. It seems to double because I was looking at the stats and it's like in 2002, it's this big. In 2012, it's this big. And now the estimates are that to, tra- to travel the entire known universe, visible universe, it would take you 46 billion light years in the Millennium Falcon. That's a long time. The point is this, God is above it all. In fact, he's so above it all. How did it all come into existence? All the vastness and the bigness of it, you know how it happened? He spoke, that's it. He just spoke and that happened. And what David is doing is he's, he's looking at it and he's saying, you are higher than that. Wow. Certainly you are majestic. Your glory is over that. And then he comes into, what does God do? What is, and he does a lot of things, but what is one thing that he kind of zooms in on? Verse two, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And this is a poetic way of saying, you know how God beats his enemies? Those who try to oppose him, those who usurp him. Psalm two, you read it. The God sits in heaven and laughs is what God, when they try to rise up against him. But do you know how he fights his enemies? He is so mighty. Do you know what he uses? He uses babbling babies. Dada, mama, Gigi, Mimi. The words of babies is how he beats his enemies. That's what he does. Remember in, in when elementary school, you, you, you go to recess and you have to pick teams. I know they don't pick teams anymore because it's not politically correct, but it's, 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 it's good for your soul to be the last person picked, let me tell you. But remember when you were at recess, the, you, the same guy was always picked first, right? I mean, for me, it was this guy, Ted, I've told you before, Ted Darius. remember, every, if you were to get to pick first, you picked Ted, because you're gonna win. And the same person was picked last too. And so that was you, that was you. And it's okay, you made it, you're fine. Maybe you're emotionally scarred, I don't know. But, but the idea is here is, when God loads his team up, he picks the rejects. He doesn't pick the best. He picks the babies. And the idea with babies is it's, the baby is the most dependent, weak, needy of all humans, right? Every, they need you to carry them. They need you to feed them. They need you to change them. They need you to put them down. They need everything. And when God goes into battle against his enemies, who's he choose? The weak sauce. 
the babbling babies. That's how he wins. That's how he defeats his enemies. And the point is this. Why is God so majestic? Because even though he's mighty, he uses the weak. He uses the weak. When he wants to silence his enemies, he doesn't have to say anything about himself. He uses babbling, da-da-da-da. That's how he wins. That's how mighty he is. He wants to, if you want to shut down the, his enemies, he uses just the cry of this, of this weakest servant, of the most needy, the rejects. And if anyone gets this, it's David, y'all. David was a reject to start. When God comes to Samuel and says, I want you to appoint a new king because Saul's out. I've, a, I've got a guy, a man after my own heart of the sons of Jesse. Let's go to Jesse's house and you'll, you'll meet his son. So he goes and Jesse has a lot of sons. And so they start bringing him out in age order. And the first one comes out Eliab and, and Samuel's like, that is a king. That looks like a king. He must be the king. And God says, that's not my king. And he works through all the brothers and, and God hasn't said, yep, that's the guy. And Samuel's like, wait, you don't have any more sons, Jesse? And Jesse's like, oh man, we forgot the youngest. <laughs> he doesn't really count. You know, we kinda, he gets all the hand-me-downs and we put him out to work. He said, go get him. And as soon as Samuel sees him, he says, that's the one. He's a reject. His, even, his own dad is like, yeah, we don't know what to do with him. <laughs> when he goes to take his brothers. He, gets, he has to take his brother's food. They're at the front line fighting the battles. And he's got to take you know, the sandwiches to the brothers. And Goliath is coming out every day. Who will fight me? Who will fight me? And everyone's scared to death. David's like, I'll go. His brothers are like, David, get out of here. Get back home and tell mom no more mustard on the sandwiches. We don't like the mustard, right? Get out of here. He's like, I'll fight him. He goes to Saul, I'll fight him. He's like, you can't fight him. You're just a youth. He's been fighting men and killing men since before you were born. And finally, he convinces them to let him fight. So they try to put all the gear on him and give him a spear and give him the armor. He's like, I can't use these. I'm not used to them. So he said, what does he go with to fight this great warrior? He goes with a staff and a slingshot and five little stones. And he stands before this giant and says, you come at me with sword and with spear and with javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And who wins? David. He gets this, the weak. God uses the weak. This is the story throughout the scripture. 300 men, Midian, against 135,000 Midianites, Gideon, and they don't even have a weapon. They got a torch and a little jar and a trumpet. And what do they do? They smash their jar and they hang their flashlights up and they blow, and God wipes out 135,000. They don't even do anything. That's what God does. How does he take down the walls of Jericho? They walk around. And on the last day, they walk around and go, woo, and they yell, and then walls fall down. They don't even lift the sword. That's what God does. He uses the weak. He takes 12 apostles who are rejects and a couple ladies who are rejected too, and he changes the world. And the ultimate of this, the ultimate of God using the weak is how does he defeat Satan and sin and death through the foolishness of a Roman cross? which is the power of God for those who believe. See, that's what God does. And verse two, y'all, is a sweet reminder to us. If you came in this morning and you're down, you're thinking, man, I'm beat. And you're fighting and you're failing. And you feel like, you know, I just, I'm a nobody. It's a reminder is you don't have to be impressive. God's not looking for impressive. He's looking for babies. If you have the faith 
of a mustard seed. Get to come to him like a child, he says. If you're struggling with some sin and you're being defeated day after day because you keep fighting and you keep fighting and you're fighting, you need to stop fighting in your own flesh and you need to cry out to the majestic one who spoke galaxies into existence. And he says, it's that small little cry, that weak babbling baby cry, and I will give you strength. That you can run to him, that he always leads us in triumphal procession. That he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay just broken pottery. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to him and not us. That's the point. So God gets the bragging rights. If, you're, if there's a struggle, if there's a suffering, there's a bad medical report, there's a, a job, there's a, a kid that's wandering, there's whatever it is, and you need fresh strength, start with praising the majestic one. He uses the praise of his saints to defeat the enemy, to give you hope. His grace is made perfect in weakness. He does his most impressive work through human weakness to the lips that cry out in simple praise, he is majestic, right? And we need to get this into our heads and we need to get it into our hearts for our own personal lives, for our church. God is not looking down saying, that's an impressive church. They're running three services now, you know that? They got nurseries, they got greeting team, they got good coffee, He's not looking at our past. He's not looking at our budget. What he's looking at is, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the merciful, even the persecuted. That's what he's looking for. That's why he does his greatest work. Through babbling babies, he silences the avenger, right? That's what we need to be. And we need to get it into our heads. We need to get it into our hearts and then the last question he's gonna answer is, then, then who are we to him? I mean, he's majestic and he uses the weak. Who are we to him? Let's keep reading, verse three. Again, he's still looking at the stars. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. And notice it's your moon, your stars, you've set in place. This is not, he's not looking up and saying, wow, what a random, what a random event must have taken place for that to happen. No, he sees there's order and there's structure and there must be a creator who is over it all. And then he asks the question, in, in light of the vastness of it, what is man? You're so big and great, who are we? Many of us know the first word spoken on the moon by Neil Armstrong, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But you know the second man on the moon, you know what he said when he got out? I'm like, oh man, I, I should have been first. He, he quoted this verse. He gets onto the moon and he quotes, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful? That's what he quoted, Buzz Aldrin. Why? Because when you see God's vastness and bigness, the only response is not, I mean, I'm pretty impressive. It's like, why do you even care about us? Uh, what, what do you even see in us? Who are we? Who are we? And you know, one of the narratives against Christianity these days is, you Christians, you think that there's a God who cares about you? Do you not know how big the universe is, how vast the universe is? And you think that there's a God out there who intimately cares about you? And when you're such a, we're just like nobody on this small speck. You're seven billion people on this small speck in this huge universe. And that's not an argument we're making. We're saying, I know, isn't it amazing? That's the point. That's what David is saying. I know, he's created all this. It would take Han Solo 46 billion years to get from one end to the other, and he still knows my name. 
how majestic is your name? Why, why, why do you care is the point. Why do you care for us? You should, what do we have to offer you? What can I give you that you don't have? Verse five answers. He said, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Some translations say the angels. Some say God. We don't know exactly if he's referring to both. The writer of Hebrews applies this to angels. Right? It's the, it's the Hebrew word Elohim. It can mean all sorts of things. But he said, his point is this. He's made us under him. But here's the main idea. He has crowned us with glory and honor. He's crowned us with glory of honor. Out of all of God's vast creation, and it is vast, he has made mankind, men and women, the pinnacle, the, the distinct piece of his creation, right? We are the only thing in all of the universe that has been stamped with the image of God. This is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. That, that mankind, homo sapiens, is completely unique and stands above all the rest of creation, not because we're so special, not because, oh, he doesn't look down and say, man, they are really good at math down there. Man, that's, she is really pretty. He's really successful and gifted. He can really shoot the ball. That's not what he does. We are distinct and we are unique solely because he has stamped us with his image. And so who are we to him? He has chosen us to bear his image. And there's all sorts of implications and there are all sorts of things that we could talk about there. But the point is, is there is value and dignity and we are distinct from everything else. Why? Solely because God has taken what is common and made it uncommon now. And we see this all the time. Something is common and then it's associated with someone significant and becomes uncommon, right? And so you have a piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper, but it's signed by somebody famous. And all of a sudden, it's worth something. Something that is common is made uncommon. Probably the you know, biggest example, I saw this in the last year, is so Tom Brady retired again for like the 30th time last year, right? And he did it on the beach and he took a picture, a video of himself and he's like, I'm retiring finally, you know, I'm done. And so some guy went out to that very spot, knew where it was and he got sand. He got a jar of sand from when Tom Brady were retired and he was selling this on eBay and the last bid was $99,000, for sand in a jar. I don't know who paid it. I don't know what moron paid that sand. I could have given him some, you know, sand from Savannah. What was common becomes uncommon because of Tom Brady. And what is, is the, the text is teaching is we are common, but we are made uncommon. Why? Because God has stamped his, his image on us. He breathed life into us and we are thus distinct and have dignity. Right? That, that's the idea. We are made in his image. That's where value comes from. And it's the exact opposite where the, where the world sees value. The world sees value based on what? Performance, based on capacity. Because you can do X, you are valuable. Because you do Y, you are valuable. It's the opposite of what God says. You can do nothing because I am vast and you are small, but I have stamped you with my image and given you value, glory, and dignity. And then he's given us a job. You've given him dominion. Over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet, all sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, 
Fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the path of the sea. He says, you are to govern in my place. You are my co-regents, is the idea. That you are to govern and steward this world as I would because my image rests upon you. And this idea of image, again, so many implications. This is why Jesus, when he's asked by the Pharisees, should we pay Caesar tax? What does he say? Show me a coin. He said, whose who's picture's on that coin? Whose image is the word he uses? They say it's Caesar. He says, render to Caesar what's Caesar's, render to God what's God's. The idea is you render the, whoever's image is on you, render your, your life to him. And whose image is on us? His. So our life belongs to him. Why? Because of the image of God stamped on us. And there's implications upon implications upon implications here. Let me give you a few. This is why murder is wrong. It's not because it's mean. Genesis 9, he says, you shall not kill another person. Why? Because men and women are made in my image and there's value there. That's why the capital punishment was, was the crime for murder, was the punishment for murder, because it's such a high value. Mankind. Right? This is why, next level down, this is why if you're a bully, it's wrong. It's, we're not survival of the fittest here. Well, I'm bigger than him. I can make fun of him. No, this person you're picking on, this person you're ostracizing, this person you're criticizing, this person you're making fun of is loved by God and is made in his image and should be treated with dignity and respect. This is why you talk and smack about your boss, about your neighbor, about your coach, about your kid's coach, about the umpire, about the referee is wrong because they are made in God's image and he takes it serious. Yeah, this person's made in my image, has dignity. You need to hush. This is why you're driving down the road and the person in front of you is going slow. Yes, they're going slow. That doesn't mean you should be giving them your mind and giving them your hand signals and everything else. Why? Because they're made in God's image. They have dignity. They have value. Right? That's the implication. This is why we don't show partiality. If you give a million dollars to whatever, you are no more valuable than the child that's sitting in the nursery right now that needs its diaper changed and it's crying and needs a cracker. Not in God's eyes. Why? Because their value is not based on the million dollars or based on the diaper. It's based on the image of God on them and should be treated as such. That's why racism and classism and all these isms have no place among the people of God. Because we have been stamped with his image and have value, right? This is why abortion and Christianity are not compatible. Because that, that child in its mother's womb is not a clump of cells, it is not a fetus, it is a person made in the image of God and has value, right? And, and I would say this, in our, in our church, there's a lot of folks that are suffering because of that. Abortion is not the unpardonable sin, it's not. There's no unpardonable sin, right? And there's grace and forgiveness for that. But you gotta understand, this is not a political issue. It is a theological issue. And the people of God need to defend those who cannot be defended on their own because that's what God has done for us. That's the point. This is why we spend thousands, if not millions of dollars, y'all, sending money overseas to countries that don't have the resources that we have. Why? Because God takes care of the little guy. And he has said, hey, I'm giving you this. This is what I've given you to steward. And so our job is to take the, the might that we have, like he has his might and he moves into the little guy. We take our might that we have and we move to the little guy. This is why we're spending, investing so much with, with orphans these days, right? And with adoption, 
in our city. Why? Because it's the little guy. This is why we, we should honor and care for the elderly and not just say, oh, we're gonna ship them off and put them over here. No, no, they are stamped with the image of God and have value, so we honor them and we care for them. This is what we do. Those with disabilities, right? I was, I've been doing a lot of reading this week and, and I, I saw that um, in certain countries specifically, it was shocking to me, New Zealand and Australia, two of them, that the Down syndrome birth rate is 77% down for what it was 20 years ago. And the reason why is because they're killing Down syndrome infants in the womb because you can identify it earlier and so, oh, we don't want a Down syndrome, so they kill. It's not because we've got a, oh, we fixed it. Oh, we figured it out. How to, no, we are killing them by because we don't value them because we see things as a capacity and not image of God. And y'all, the church needs to see things the way God sees things, where the Christian loves the small and the weak. Why? Because again, we're his image bearers. And so we are a model how he governs. How does he govern? He being mighty and outside of everything moves into the weak. So what do we do? We use our might and we move towards the weak. That's what we do. He's put us in charge. He's given us dominion to do so. We don't worship the planet, but we should steward the planet because that's what God does, right? He has put us in charge for this. And David is standing back and saying, who am I to do this? Who, how majestic, God, a God who is so big, but would choose to use weak. And on top of that, he would make weak people his image bearers and give them dominion and authority and stewardship. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. That's where he lands, right? That's where he lands. And let me give you just some implications and thoughts real quick, just some bullet points so you can work through uh, because there's a lot here. But let me just give you a few thoughts. Number one, get outside and enjoy God's creation. Right? I mean, y'all, get outside. You live in the most beautiful city, one of the most beautiful cities in the country. Go outside, put the phone down. Now, I know today is Father's Day, so watch the US Open and then get outside. All right? Because it, that God is glorified in his creation. Go outside at night and take a walk. Get to a place where, where you can look up into the heavens and that declare his glory and just contemplate the vastness and bigness of that God. And then you can ask, what, who am I? You'll never see God as big if we're just looking at our TVs and computers all day long. We just won't, right? Get outside. Here's another one, number two. Just think about and evaluate how do you treat people? How do you treat your boss, your students? your employees, how do you talk to them, right? The people on the other side of the political spectrum of you, how do you treat them? How do you talk to them? Because it matters. Because you may disagree with them and they may be wrong, but they are made in the image of the one true majestic God. And just because of that, they demand dignity. Not because of them, because of the God who spoke them into existence and created them with dignity. John Piper says this, you cannot worship and glorify the majesty of God while treating, treating his supreme creation with contempt. Good point. Another, another idea. Uh, be a good worker. Say, so where does that come into play? You've been given dominion, made in the image of God to create, to work, does God do a good job when he created? What does he say? It is good. It is good. 
It is good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, all the way down the line until he came to man and says, it's not good. And then he said, oh, but I'll be a woman. And now he's good. But God works and he does good because we are, and, and when we created his image, given his dominion are to work and do good and be a blessing to those around. We should make those around us better. We should create and invent and help and do to make things better. It's part of the Imago Dei. It's part of having dominion, right? And, and, that's, and when you don't do that, when you're late, when you have to have somebody come behind you and check on all your work as you're slack, when you're leaving early, when you're not doing your job, it is not a reflection of the dominion and the stewardship that God has given us. We ought to be good workers. It's, it's part of who God has created us to be, right? Another idea, don't be a complainer. To complain when you really think about who God is and his bigness and his vastness. When you complain, you are basically saying, God, I know I'm a nothing speck, but I'm a little bit more important than you think I am. And you're not running things the way I think you should. Now, if God was gonna do how I would do, it would be like stepping on an anthill and moving on when we do that. You read the end of Job after Job complains. And Job's been a good guy. If anyone has anything to say, I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy. It was Job. And what does he say when God unpacks all, where were you, where were you, where were you? And Job's like, yeah, I'm nobody, right? I know things stink sometimes and it's not fair sometimes. But we of all people, in light of what God has done, should not be grumbling and complaining. It's not fair, it's not this, because it's a challenge to God's sovereignty. It's a challenge to who he is. Instead, we're to rejoice again, I say rejoice, because God is good and God has given us the ultimate knowledge of him and knowing him in a relationship with him. Here's the last one, is don't forget the point. What is the, the whole point of Psalm 8, ultimately, what does it point to? It points to Christ. It's about him. When Paul quotes this, he says, all things are subjected under his feet. He's talking about Jesus. Writer to Hebrews says, Who is, what is man and the son of man? You've made him a little lower than the angels. He's applying that to Jesus. Why? Because the first Adam blew it and all his descendants, us, we blow it too. So there had to be another one who wouldn't blow it, who would accurately reflect the glory of God in the way he should. And that was Christ, the perfect man, the second Adam. And so when Jesus quotes this verse, this passage, what, what, what context? It's Matthew 21, He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and a bunch of kids, it says the children are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And the Pharisees say, teacher, tell them to stop. He says, have you not read Psalm 8, y'all knuckleheads? Out of the mouth of babbling babies. And he quotes that verse, why? I'm gonna, I'm gonna defeat you with what they're saying. Mouth of children. And that's what he did. The son of man, the perfect son of man, the king of kings, the majestic one who spoke all things into existence was made low, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men and was killed for us. Yet God the Father vindicated him and rose him from the dead and he is our king and he puts all things under his feet and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's about him. Ultimately, he is the majestic one. He is the one who became weak, right? He is the one who is the perfect image of God. And he says now, hey, get in, get in the game. Worship him, be weak, bear his image well. And we're gonna, as a church, just, we're just gonna remember that. We're gonna celebrate 
the Lord's table together, which is a picture of the weakness and the frailty and the humanity that Jesus became so that we could know this God, this majestic one, so that we don't have to fear and tremble so that we can come to him and draw near to him as he invites us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've put your faith in Christ this morning for the forgiveness of sin. You're, you're a sinner, but you recognize my sin is forgiven because of Christ. I've been just like David. I've, I'm a wreck, but I am forgiven. Then we'd invite you to partake. And remember the body that Jesus added to his deity so that you could know him and the blood that was shed so that you could be forgiven. And so men and women are gonna hand out the elements and just take some time to reflect on it. Maybe read this Psalm, maybe praise God through this Psalm. How majestic, Lord, who am I? And then I'll come back up in just a few minutes and we'll take together these elements, uh, the, the bread and the juice, and then we'll sing. So let me pray as we prepare our hearts. Father, use this time to draw us to you, to reflect on your greatness, to see you for who you are, a great and mighty God. And yet you didn't leave us as orphans. You didn't abandon us. You drew near to us. And at the right, perfect time, Jesus came, lived and died for us. And so we honor that and we're so thankful for that. And so, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.